I'd like to follow the example of retired admirals and generals against nuclear war. You know, during the 80s, they were a very powerful group. These are people that, while they were admirals and generals, they were saying, look, you know, we need nuclear deterrence. Our nuclear arsenal's got to be bigger than the Soviet Union and all that. The minute they retired, they began to say, look, this is crazy. Nuclear weapons don't make us safer. And they had a huge impact. So as an elder, I don't have to worry about whether the nature of things will get into trouble. I don't have to worry about whether this corporation is going to lose its profits. I don't have to worry about any of those things. I can just tell the truth. And I can tell the truth on behalf of the one group that is least empowered in our society, and that's our children. If our children aren't at center stage in our conversation, then what the hell are we doing all this or not doing all this for? Surely our love of our children has got to mean every father and mother is an eco-warrior on their behalf. I'm Peter McCulley. He's a household name in Canada. Dr. David Suzuki will retire this year as host of The Nature of Things. We'll talk to the environmentalist and science broadcaster when Today in BC continues. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media. Thanks for making time for us today, Dr. Suzuki. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. The show Nature of Things had been around about 20 years when you became the host, but prior to that, you were a professor and a geneticist. And when you graduated from the university in Chicago, I believe, in the United States, you had a, a choice of staying there at a time when science was really booming, the space race was on, or return to Canada. So what made you decide to come back home? You know, that's a very, very good question, because I was just starting my last year in college as an undergraduate in 1957, and on October 4th, the world was shocked when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. You know, it's hard for anyone today to remember the times that we were living through then. There was a Cold War going on. We talked about the Iron Curtain, and the Soviet Union looked really powerful. They were making ideological inroads in South America, in Africa, in Asia. This was just a shocking statement about their technological progress. You know, every hour and a half when that satellite went overhead beeping, it was like thumbing its nose at us. And the Americans then tried to launch their own rockets, and every one blew up. Meanwhile, the Soviets launched the first animal, a dog, Laika. Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space. Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman. And the American response was amazing. They just said, we got to catch up to these guys. And they began to throw money like you wouldn't believe. Nobody said, we can't afford to catch up. It was a glorious time to be a science student. I was a fruit fly geneticist. And I remember going to a meeting in California, just a fruit fly geneticist. When I got back to my office, I had an offer from Stanford University, from the University of California, Davis, from San Diego State. I wasn't even looking for a job, and these offers came in. But I decided in 1961 
that I didn't want to stay in the States. I wanted to begin my career as a scientist in Canada. And the reason is I knew that I would pay a price in terms of my career. For me, Canada was different. I did not like the way that Americans were so focused on money. I was brought up by parents who married during the Great Depression. And they always taught me you have to work hard to make money to buy the things that you need. But you don't talk about money as if somehow the more money you've got, the more important the person you are. But Americans revel in money, and I didn't like that. I love the fact that, that one of my heroes was a man named Tommy Douglas, who in the States, he would have been branded an outright commie. But the CCF at that time, now the NDP, was a legitimate, respected party. I love that we had Medicare. We had equalization payments where the poorer provinces would receive help from the richer provinces. And I love that Quebec was part of Canada, that the National Film Board, that CBC were all government institutions. And so I said, I got to get out of this country. I want to go home. I took the first job that I could get. That was at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. You know, I've never regretted that choice. Canada is different. I'm not saying we're better than the U.S. It's different, and I prefer the differences in Canada. It shocks me the degree to which we look to America now in Canada and seem to measure everything, how well we're doing by how are the Americans doing it. And let's go our own way and show that we're a better place to live. So you're back in Canada. You're a young, successful scientist when you decided to get into broadcasting. What did your academic colleagues think of that decision, and, and what was your motivation? Well, you know, nobody ever said to my face, listen, Suzuki, what, what the hell are you doing in television? But I got it through my grad students, which they'd go to parties and they'd meet professors who would dump all over me. And I guess there were two criticisms. One was that I was on an ego trip, and who the hell did I think I was? But two, a more kinder version was, He's such a good scientist. Why is he wasting his time in the media? But both of those remarks avoid the reality that, you know, we inform the public about science through the popular media. And scientists didn't understand that we have a responsibility to show why is science important, how is it affecting our lives, and who is driving the application of science. Because right now it's mainly the military and and corporations. And when you joined the CBC, you were pretty cool too. Granny glasses, long hair, beard, blue jeans. Folks east of the Rockies probably called you a hippie. Was it your study of zoology that you got interested in the environmental issues? Because I know the show was tackling those kinds of stories long before the mainstream media did. No. First of all, I had been bonded to the natural world. My dad was an avid outdoorsman. He loved camping and fishing. He loved gardening with wild plants he'd bring into the garden. So that was just a part of who I was. But in 1962, just as I was beginning my career in science at the university, a book came out published by Rachel Carson called Silent Spring. And it was all about the unexpected effects of pesticides. Now, you got to remember, after the war... It looked like, wow, you know, we're going into this wonderful age where technology is this wonderful thing and bringing us all these nice things. And DDT 
Paul Mueller, who discovered DDT kills insects, won a Nobel Prize in 1948. We thought this was wonderful. And Rachel Carson's book came out, and man, oh man, she was saying, look at the unexpected effects of pesticides. And she was attacked. One of the leading companies attacking her was Monsanto. She didn't have a PhD, and, you know, what did she know about this? But for me as a scientist, I read that book, and I thought, oh, my God, you know, science was so powerful, but we didn't know that if you spray these chemicals, there was a phenomenon called biomagnification. It was concentrated up the food chain. So by the time you get to the shell glands of birds, you've concentrated DDT hundreds of thousands of times more than when you sprayed it onto fields. Biomagnification was discovered as a biological phenomenon when eagles began to disappear and scientists tracked it down. So for me as a scientist, I, I began to realize, oh my goodness, science has huge impact, but we don't know enough to anticipate the negative consequences. You know, we've seen that with nuclear weapons. We didn't know about radioactive fallout until after the bombs were dropped on Japan. We didn't know about the ozone layer effects of CFCs. We didn't know that thalidomide would cause defects. I mean, all kinds of things where, for the best intentions, we discover that we don't know enough. And so I became involved in the environmental movement. But as a scientist, always aware, we need science to tell us the state of the world. But science and technology are not going to get us out of the problems without a change in the way that we see ourselves in the world. It's a tough question simply because of the size of the body of work that we're talking about. But over the 43 years that you've hosted The Nature of Things, what shows or topics would you consider to be those that you're most proud of and why? Oh, wow. I could go down <laughs> dozens and dozens of films. I think overall, though, the important thing is the longevity of the series. I remember back in the 1970s when a show came on, some of our best friends are dot, dot, dot. And the whole idea was, this is the day of women's lib. And this program was saying that some of our best friends are pigs. And I was outraged that they were getting a huge amount of money. Meanwhile, the nature of things was kind of, you know, muddling along on a limited budget. And I'm going, what the hell? Our show is so important. And Jim Murray, the executive producer, said, Suzuki, the important thing is hang in there, stay on air. And he was right. You know, think of every year when every network announces its exciting new programs and how many of them survive longer than six months. The vast majority of these hot new programs coming on never make it beyond a year. And the nature of things, when you think of it today, that it's been on since 1960, that is, to me, an example of survival of the fittest. We've got a message, and we've stayed on air. So the sum total of the message, which is science affects your life, and you better learn about that, that we're a part of the natural world. Look at nature and how wonderful nature is. Those are messages that over time, the series was able to bring home. 
Of course, you know, I think of shows that had an immediate effect, like the program we did on the Amazon back in 1989, a two-hour special called Amazonas, The Road to the End of the Forest. We did a show on the Great Dam being planned at Grand Balin, the Great Whale Project. I believe that our program stopped that dam from being built. We did shows on the pharmaceutical industry, many, many different programs. But I think it's the the sum total that really is the great contribution of, of the nature of things. Let's talk about what goes into the show. You're in front of the camera, supported by a huge team of writers and producers and camera people over all those years. I think that's an extremely important point, and thank you for bringing that up. You know, when I first got involved with the Nature of Things group in 1974, when I was asked to be the host of a new program called Science Magazine, it was run in partnership. The Nature of Things ran for half a year, and then Science Magazine followed the next half. But I was still a full-blown scientist. I had a lab. I was working full-time. One of the first shoots we were on, we were in New Orleans, and I sat on a stool, and the uh, the camera assistant came in and set up the camera, and, and then one of the researchers came in and adjusted the background so it looked all sciency, and the sound man came in and arranged the sound, and I'd have to test one, two, three, and all that. And then the lighting man came in and arranging. All this is taking time. And, you know, I'm sitting there trying to be patient. The cameraman comes in, sets up, looks at the camera, comes up to my face with a light meter and takes a reading, goes back, wiggles (laughs) the, the lens around a bit, comes back, takes another light meter reading, goes back. Now, nothing's changed, but here's the cameraman doing all this at least five or six times. And finally, I said, Rudy, for God's sake, shoot the damn thing. (laughs) And uh, Jim Murray, the executive producer, grabbed me by the shoulders, pulled me into a side room and closed the door (laughs) and silently said, listen, Suzuki, everybody in that room is busting their ass to make you look good. And that's not easy. (laughs) I slunk back into the room because I realized when people look at the show, they don't say, oh, wow, did you see the lighting in that? Or wasn't the sound terrific? They just say, oh, Suzuki's show was great. And I get credit for all of the work these people are doing. As you say, uh, you know, dozens of people are involved in every show, from the researcher to the director to the writer, then the publicist, and, you know, lots of people go into making a program that finally gets on air. I get credit for all of that. Now, I have to say, I get blame for all of that, too. Believe me, when vested interests are attacked by the nature of things, they come after me. You know, get that guy off the air. He should be fired from his job at the university. But I feel so much that my entire life and my career as in science and journalism and as a father, that is made possible by a lot of other people. And I'm glad you raised that because we've had a terrific group of people. I thank the CBC for keeping me on air. My goodness, the number of times that the call for me to be fired came in and uh, they defended me. I'm ever grateful for that. When Today in BC continues, Dr. David Suzuki talks about the environmental movement and what's next. Buying a home is an important milestone. 
Find the right realtor and the right listings for your needs at todayshomebc.com. Powered by Black Press Media. With easy-to-use search filters and direct links to realtors and their websites, you'll get all the information you need to find your perfect home. Search hundreds of local listings and get access to the top real estate professionals to help you find your perfect property. Get started now at todayshomebc.com. I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. Dr. Suzuki, has the show been able to shape or influence government policy in any way? You know, I don't know. I don't think so, because politicians respond to issues not on the basis of facts, certainly not on the basis of being environmentally correct. They respond to issues that appear to affect their likelihood of being reelected. And so my focus really has been, while we may criticize politicians, although it's difficult for the CBC, it was difficult for my organization, the David Suzuki Foundation, because we were a charity and we would be criticized by politicians if we, if we dared to criticize politics. I think where the nature of things has been very effective is when we raise issues, provide information that empowers public groups to respond. So often, for example, when Hydro-Quebec was planning to build the Great Whale Dam, we came on with a major program about the impact of the dams in Quebec. And I think we gave the environmental movements and the indigenous people, the Cree of Quebec, powerful ammunition then to go after government. So I, I know that the nature of things has been influential, but really affecting on-the-ground groups. The program of which I am most happy with doing because it began a whole new phase for me as a program we did on the fight over logging of a one watershed called Windy Bay in Haida Gwaii. At that time in 1980, I had really not known anything about the indigenous people and the way they were being assaulted by corporations and governments. And Windy Bay was where the Haida had decided no more logging of our important watersheds. The government had given permission for a forest company to log Windy Bay. And the Haida said, no, this has got to stop. There was already a very powerful environmental movement about forestry issues. But our program really made that issue a national program. The Haida tell me they got a huge response of support to their issue, and I think played a major part in ultimately uh, preventing the logging of Windy Bay, and that led to the formation of uh, Guayanas. The bottom third of the archipelago is now a national park reserve, Guayanas, and I'm very, very proud of that, but I'm also pleased that it began a whole new level of my understanding of the importance of Indigenous people in the fight to protect the world. Speaking of issues and tackling them head-on and uh, informing other Canadians about them, about 10 years ago you had an opportunity to shed the light on a problem that's facing generations of Canadians, Alzheimer's, but in a, a very personal way. Your mother and her three siblings all had Alzheimer's. That must have been very emotional. It was. You know, these program ideas, 99% of them come from directors or producers who say, hey, I've got a good idea. 
here's the way the show should be. And it was that way with the Alzheimer's show. Someone said, listen, we've got to do a program on this. It's an important public issue. And my contribution was to say, well, I've got a directed interest in this. My mother had Alzheimer's and her three brothers and, and her sister all died of dementia. So I'm as interested in learning about the issue, but I offered to talk about how it affected me personally. And I think that personal involvement had a real impact on the program itself. You've also had a chance to work with your youngest daughter, Sarika, on several episodes. That's been a delight, actually. I don't know how we got the idea of doing the Suzuki Diaries, but she is, has a PhD in marine biology. She's very articulate and attractive. And someone had the idea of the Suzuki Diaries. How about bringing your daughter in to see the kind of intergenerational conversation we could have? I think she flourished in it. You know, I had been talking about retirement for many, many years. And they said, well, you're so tightly tied to the program. People identify the nature of things with David Suzuki. For that reason, I stayed with the show long after I was saying, look, I'd, I'd like to get out of this. And so one of the things I thought was, well, what about my daughters? They both are uh, very involved in the issues. But both of them said, no, we've seen the price you paid. They had young families, and they didn't want to spend the amount of time away from the family as I did. They, in many ways, paid the price for my absence, and they didn't want to do that with their families. So really, the involvement of Sarika was just the idea for a new way of intergenerational stuff. And then it became clear that she could be a good on-air person. She went through a competitive process. They screened all kinds of people, and she was one of the finalists, and I'm very pleased that she did that on her own. Excellent. Well, she's got my vote, I'll tell you. Thank you. Thank you. I remember watching this CBC series about 20 years ago, The Greatest Canadian of All Time, chosen by viewers. Dr. David Suzuki finished fifth. How did that make you feel? <laughs> well, you know, this is a television thing, and I guess the thing that tickled me was that the four people ahead of me were all dead. So does that make me the greatest living Canadian? <laughs> but, you know, I, I have to admit, I didn't take it very seriously because you got to remember who else were in the top 10. I mean, Wayne Gretzky and Don Cherry. So you got to ask, what is this really about? I mean, the four people who were dead clearly deserved to be there, and they're already dead. But it showed to me the power of television and that the media now were playing a role in who Canadians were aware of. And, you know, I was pleased that I was on there, but one can't take those too seriously, I don't think. <laughs> well, you've received many honours and awards. You've got Order of Canada, Order of British Columbia. How did you feel when you were awarded the British Columbia Reconciliation Award? Because I know that Indigenous issues are close to your heart. Very, very pleased with that. The highest honor that I've had has been the Order of Canada. But this one really is right up there. I was called by Stephen Point, who was outgoing lieutenant governor, and Jane Austen, the uh, incoming lieutenant governor, who said Stephen, who is an indigenous person, wanted as part of his legacy, wanted to begin a new program of recognition, and that was involved in reconciliation. 
and they told me then, this is last year, that I had won uh, in the first year that the series was going. Very, very honored. Honored because an Indigenous person wanted to tell me that my work with Indigenous people was valued. And I feel humbled by it because my involvement with Indigenous people has been totally self-interested. They have taught me everything I know about the environmental movement and and why the environment is important and why indigenous people around the world add an element that we don't have in the dominant societies. We need them to show us how to live in balance with the things that really matter in the world that we're living in. So I've been a student, and I'm delighted and honored to receive this, but really humbled by it because, as I say, I've just been a student, and I've been able to use my presence as a journalist to make a lot of their issues public interest. The nature of things has surely over the years taken you all over the globe, and then some. Perhaps you could share with us. Some of those places, those geographic locations that have stayed with you over the years and why? Well, you know, when I was a boy, I had three places I wanted desperately to see. I wanted to see Australia because for me it was the duck-billed platypus, you know, that sounded so amazing. I wanted to go to Africa, of course, which was so rich in wildlife. And I wanted to go to the Amazon. When I was a boy, was still in vastly unexplored area that was filled with people that cannibals and all kinds of people and that was exciting to me and thanks to the nature of things I visited all three of those areas that I dreamt of as in a lifetime but of course it added more to me one of the most important areas that I visited many times for the nature of things is the Arctic I think Canadians really ought to understand how important the Arctic is to who we are as Canadians and how unbelievably endangered it is. The Arctic, the North, is warming at four times the rate that it's warming on average around the globe. And Indigenous people, the Inuit, have been telling us for years now that something is going on up there. And the boreal forest is the largest intact forest left on the planet. The boreal is is Canada's great treasure. And of course, we're attacking it like mad now. And these are all important parts of my education. I visited some of the big countries as well, Russia, Siberia, uh, for the nature of things, Japan and China. These have all been really important experiences through the lens of the nature of things. But I think as important as the ecologically valuable places I've visited are people that I've met, you know, from Richard Leakey in Africa to Nandanachiva um, in, in India and Jane uh, Goodall. So many people that have changed my life through the work that they're doing. And it's all thanks to the nature of things and their ideas and their importance have been brought to our audience through the nature of things in Canada. So that's been great. I wanted to ask you about the worldwide environmental movement and the issues it's addressed over the years and continues to address. Has it been successful for the most part? It's been successful in raising specific issues over time. You know, 
Acid rain was once a big issue. Uh, CFCs were once a big issue. Uh, pesticides. I mean, there have been a lot of issues. Clear-cut logging practices, plastics in the oceans. These have all been brought to bear. But the problem, I think, is that those are all symptoms of the fact that human beings have become this powerful force on the planet. This is why scientists now call this the, the Anthropocene Epoch, a geological period, a very short period of time, when human beings have become the most powerful factor that are altering the physical, chemical, and biological properties of the planet. There's never been a single species able to do what we are doing. And it now threatens not only much of the wilderness and wild creatures around the planet, it now threatens human survival into the future. This is an amazing period, and we have to realize that the very institutions we've created to manage human behavior, that is our legal systems, our economic systems, our political systems, they're all designed around us. Nature is not at the center of our legal, economic, and political systems. Nature is just a, an adjunct, a side issue. If we can use nature in some way, great. Then we pay attention to it economically. I, I think Mark Carney in his book, Values, really stated it really clearly. Amazon, the company that Jeff Bezos founded, is worth economically hundreds of billions of dollars. Amazon, the greatest ecosystem on the planet, has no value in our economic system until someone cuts it down for the logs or until we dam it or until we clear it to begin growing soybeans or cattle on it, until we develop it for cities. But left on its own, the Amazon has no economic value. Well, if that isn't an indication that something is wrong here. I don't know what it is. But, you know, you look at what Lula, the new uh, president of Brazil, has. He's going to have a battle. He wants to put indigenous people at the, at the center of the Amazon. He wants to protect the Amazon rainforest. But until he gets money, and here I think we have an opportunity in rich countries, we stand there going, tut, 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 don't destroy the Amazon. Well, damn it all. It's a system that we depend on here. We're the rich countries. Let's pay money to Lula so that he can put the money into protecting the Amazon. We haven't shifted the way that we see our place on the planet. That's why indigenous people are central to it. We have to indigenize ourselves as a species. Every people have to become the people of that land. Because the minute you see your identity, your very life, your well-being depend on the place that you are living, then protecting that becomes your highest priority. And that's what Indigenous people are telling us. We have a responsibility. You hear Indigenous people speaking of seven generations. You think back on seven generations of your ancestors what did they do and what did they leave us? Now think on seven generations of our children. What the hell are we leaving to them? And they tell me, it's not just seven generations of people. Think of seven generations of the trees, 
seven generations of the fish, seven generations of the coral reefs. We've got to think long-term. And our institutions simply don't do that. Our institutions think the laws are governing everything. We think that our economy is the highest priority and everything's got to serve its continued growth. Our politics, which are based on inter-election intervals, our politics dominate the big decisions that we're making. And in doing, in thinking that way, the environmental movement has fundamentally failed. We haven't made that shift. You see, stopping pollution by a chemical plant, stopping the clear-cutting of this forest, doesn't solve the long-term problem. The corporations are still there. They still want to pollute because the earth doesn't have an economic value, so do it for free. You know, we still need trees, so let's keep cutting them down. We need a different way of seeing our place on the planet. And that's what the environmental movement now, working with indigenous people, can be the long-term solution to getting out of this. Just because we won't see you on the nature of things every week after this current season is over, I can't imagine you're going to be sitting still for very long. You've authored or co-authored 52 books. What have you got planned and what are you working on? Well, I think this is the most important phase of my life. You see, I belong to a group that are absolutely unique in our country. Elders. We've lived an entire lifetime. You know, and when I hear people talking about climate change and all that, and they work for the oil companies, well, what the hell do we think they're going to say? Elders don't have a stake in the status quo. We're retired. We're beyond that. I'd like to follow the example of retired admirals and generals against nuclear war. You know, during the 80s, they were a very powerful group. These are people that, while they were admirals and generals, they were saying, look, you know, we need nuclear deterrence. Our nuclear arsenal has got to be bigger than the Soviet Union and all that. The minute they retired, they began to say, look, this is crazy. Nuclear weapons don't make us safer. And they had a huge impact. So as an elder, I don't have to worry about whether the nature of things will get into trouble. I don't have to worry about whether this corporation is going to lose its profits. I don't have to worry about any of those things. I can just tell the truth, and I can tell the truth on behalf of the one group that is least empowered in our society, and that's our children. If our children aren't at center stage in our conversation, then what the hell are we doing all this or not doing all this for? Surely our love of our children has got to mean every father and mother is an eco-warrior on their behalf. I told Greta Thunberg when she came to Canada, when I met her the first time, I said, I'm so sorry. This isn't what children your age should be doing. Youth should be out there exploring. They've got the whole world to discover, you know. They're outside of the nest. They're going to high school. They're beginning to date. They're beginning to hang out with other groups. They're just looking at what they like and what they don't like. They're just exploring the world. Mom and dad should be fighting like mad to ensure that their future is rich with opportunity. If mom and dad aren't out there fighting, if our love of our children isn't enough to motivate us, then what the hell does that say about us as a species? 
You know, that's an indictment. I really believe what Neil Young is now saying, you know, love Earth. Love has got to be the motivating and driving factor in everything that we do now. Love our children. Love Mother Earth because she is truly our mother. She gives us everything we need to flourish. I'd like to thank Dr. David Suzuki for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts.